We're going to read from God's Word as we start today. If you have a Bible on you, uh, why don't you grab it now? Uh, We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 15, uh, and we're going to be reading the whole thing, verses 1 to 32 today, the whole passage. I know we've normally, the last number of weeks, we've been in a little short, kind of three or four verses, okay? Uh, But we're in the whole lot this morning. Uh, And so if you've got a Bible on you, why don't you turn to it now? If not, the words shall appear behind me. This is Luke 15, verses 1 to 32, and this is the Word of the Lord. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he, was, he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead And is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
And we thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. We enter into the fourth week now in our series looking at how we live out the kingdom message that Jesus spent so much of his time teaching on, right? And the reality of how he teaches is in parable. It's in story, okay? Uh, We're often tempted to believe that the teaching comes afterwards, that the big blocks, you know, things like the Sermon on the Mount or other blocks of teaching that Jesus performs, that's the actual teaching. And uh, and the parable, in a way, is just the starter, right? It's just to kind of whet your appetite. It's just to kind of point at the issue, and he'll actually teach on it later. But the reality is the story is the teaching. The story is the teaching. Don't miss it. Don't miss the fact that when Jesus is teaching in parable, he's teaching. He's not just telling quaint stories. He's not just arming Sunday school teachers. The teaching is the story. And today we land on one of the most famous parables in all of the Bible, the parable of the prodigal son, one that I have no doubt you've probably heard before, you've probably heard taught before, you've maybe read Tim Keller's incredible book uh, on this one parable, right? It's, It's well known. And during lockdown, uh, whenever we were in that period of time, whenever the weather was like absolutely glorious, right? Do you remember that bit where it was like every day the sun split the sky and there we all were stuck in our homes, only able to go for one kind of bout of exercise every day, right? You know that period of time. Do you remember that part? It was in like April or whenever it was. It was absolutely glorious, right? And so where we used to live, everyone was kind of out their back gardens in that period of time. And everyone was out, and people were barbecuing, people were painting fences, kids were kind of playing in their gardens. And it was kind of a really serene picture, right? Because the other bit was nobody was going anywhere, so there was no cars traveling. It was just the sound when you were out in your back garden of like kids laughing and food sizzling and like all of that sort of stuff, right? It was kind of a beautiful picture. I mean, there was a, there was a global pandemic going on and everything, right? But it was, it was kind of picture perfect from where we stood. And then one evening, it started, right? All of a sudden, there's the sound of like cables being plugged into a PA, right? You know, that awful sound of like, like clicking going on, right? And then it starts. Some awful crooner singing one of the worst renditions you've ever heard of Brian Adams, The Summer of 69, right? I mean, you start with that. It can only go downhill from there. And sure enough, for the next like two hours, we get all the classics. We get like, don't stop believing, uh, which I'm like, no, I stopped believing the minute you stopped singing. But anyway, don't stop believing. You know, we had Ed Sheeran, Castle on the Hill. We had every breath you take and on and on and on and on and on. And basically somebody had decided because we were all in this term of doom and gloom, that they were going to hire a covers guy to sit in their front garden with a massive PA and like sing over this entire development for two hours, right? So we're all in this Facebook group. Our, Our development is all like, there's like a group set up for it. By the way, the Facebook group is the greatest thing ever. But anyway, the Facebook group lights up, right? And about 50% of the people are like, oh my goodness, whoever he is, he's so talented, right? So about half of the people are like, can we do this every weekend? And the other half of the people are like, make it stop now, right? And it's kind of going on and on and on, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth about it, right? Most people thought it was terrible, okay? And here's the thing. I tell you that story because because that's exactly how this series of parables starts. Read that first little section again, right? Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
You see, Jesus is celebrating. There's a party happening, and it's the one that most of these people never wanted. There's a celebration happening as sinners and tax collectors and the outcasts of society and the people that other people didn't like are coming to him, are finding faith in him. And the problem is that the religious types didn't want it to happen. There was a celebration going on, but it was with all the wrong people. To the established religious people, this was a nightmare, right? He welcomes these people. I mean, that guy, he's a tax collector. You can't be spending time with him. And we've got to get this, right, as the context for all of what Jesus says next. The parables we all probably know all too well. We've heard so many times, right, that all sorts of people are gathering around Jesus, coming to faith, following him. And the religious people, that's us, by the way, don't like it. The context is there's incredible things happening, and the religious people don't like it. You see, to his critics, Jesus has a totally different idea of what repentance means. You see, to them, repentance meant to adopt their standards, right? To start to do the things that they did, their standards, start to observe the purity laws and the sorts of things that they thought were important, right? Jesus just meant for people to follow him. See, repentance and finding faith meant all sorts of practices and purity and observations and laws and regulations, but to Jesus... It just meant following him. It just meant following him. And that's the thing, isn't it? So often it's easy to pay lip service to the idea of reaching others with Jesus, but then we turn our noses up when we actually do. Why? Because people don't look like us. Because when they find faith, they don't look like us. Because it's hard work because they don't believe all the things we believe, because their lives are messy and unentwining them from the sorts of lifestyles that they've led to that point is hard work and you sort of spend your time a bit exasperated because they don't look like you. And we're making it about us, aren't we? When we do that, we make it about us, as we so often do. We start the message of the kingdom and the incredible vision of, uh, and life of what Jesus wants to do in this world through us and his church corporately, and somehow we end up making it about us. Sure, they met Jesus. They don't look like us. Oh, I don't know if they'll fit in here. That's what's happening here. That's why Jesus teaches in these parables, the ones we're going to go into today, dig into today. We listen to the parables and we start to think about how we might squeeze that idea or this worldview or practice into our already hectic lives, like some sort of Christian Tetris, right? Like these ideas that Jesus has been talking about, how do we kind of fit them around the things I I already believe, I already am, the stuff I want to do with my life. Let's just fit a little bit of Jesus in and around the spaces in my life so I can feel a little bit better about myself, not take on the yoke of what he's trying to teach in the kingdom. Jesus wants us to follow him and everybody else, regardless of how they look. And the core message of these parables today is really, really pretty straightforward, right? There's two points. It's about being lost and it's about getting found. This whole series of parables are about lost and found, right? And the first part of that is about being lost, 
And in lots of ways, these parables today all say the same thing, right? That's kind of the general gist I'm sure you got as you heard those three parables read to you in quick succession today, right? Like Jesus is just saying the same thing three times in many ways. But one thing in common across them all uh, is that in each of them, something gets lost. Actually, there's a bit more going on in each of them, okay? Particularly the prodigal son, there's lots of interpretations of that one in and of itself, okay? But the one common thread, or one of the common threads, is that something gets lost. And I wonder if you've ever experienced in your life the loss of something meaningful to you. Like, I don't just mean like, you know, kind of low level, oh, I lost that pen that I like to write. Maybe it's a significant pen. Maybe I've just, you know, hurt you because, you know, some long lost uncle gave you that Parker pen and now you've lost it, right? But, you know, not just, you know, an item of stationery, something significant to you that you've lost. Maybe you've lost something in your life, okay? When I was really young, uh, when we were growing up, we had this golden retriever uh, called Holly. Uh, if you know me, you know that I love dogs, okay? Uh, and we lived in a manse down the Antrim Road. It had an incredible back garden, like absolutely massive. And so Holly lived in that back garden, especially in the summertime. We had a big post in the middle of the garden, a massive chain, and Holly basically just ran around all day long, every day. And we were in the garden too, so it was kind of brilliant, right? Holly loved it. And then one Friday night, we were kind of out in the garden. Mom shouts, you know, it's dinner time. So that meant it's Holly's dinner time. So we all come inside. Mom takes the bowl of food out for Holly for her to get her dinner. And it was right about that same time that somebody decided it was going to be a good idea to throw a pipe bomb at the house of the judge who lived at the top of our street. So they throw a pipe bomb over the fence. Bomb goes off and Holly bolts. Holly breaks the chain that she was attached to. She runs and she just never ever stopped running. And we search for days, right? You ring every pound, you're like, you know, you're sticking those little letters up in the news agents around, you're like out driving all the time, uh, trying to find the dog. In fact, you reach that weird stage where every golden retriever you see, you're like, that's Holly. You're like, it's not her, but you think it is, right? You reach that point. You're so desperate to find the dog. I realize all the dog people in the room right now are like a bubbling mess, by the way. Okay, right, sorry, sorry. But I was still in primary school, right? I was still at primary school age, right? Like over 20 years has passed since that moment, and I still remember the burning sting of how that loss felt. And it's that lostness that Jesus speaks into today, right? The thing is, though, the three of them aren't the same. Here's the first one. Then Jesus told him this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one until he finds it? You see, the first time he speaks into it, it's about a shepherd with a hundred sheep and he loses one. And you're thinking, well, one out of a hundred isn't bad, right? You know, you're thinking, eh, if you came back at the end of a hard kind of period of time in the fields, often they spent prolonged period of times like out in the countryside. If you came back and you came back with 99, you've only lost one, that's not so bad, right? I mean, those of you that have ever been on a school trip or have taken a youth group away anywhere, right, are all of a sudden thinking, well, if I took a hundred young people and came away with 99, that's not bad, Right? We've only lost one stinking teenager. I mean, it's not like Northern Ireland will be a worse off place without one less te- Sorry, sorry. There's a reason why I'm not a youth worker. It would be. If that's your teenager, sorry, right? But you might think as you listen to it, you know, that it would be acceptable for a shepherd to lose one out of a hundred. I mean, those are pretty good odds, right? I mean, if you manage to, to maintain, keep safe, uh, help 99 sheep thrive, right? You've only lost one. That's pretty good odds, isn't it? In just about every walk of life, those are pretty good odds. Except it's not when you're a shepherd. Because they're his 
sheep. He knows them all. And he leaves the rest of them to find the one. The thing about sheep is, right, obviously as an experienced shepherd myself, they're not that bright, okay? They're not the cleverest animals in the animal kingdom. They get lost really very easily. And right here, the sheep demonstrates just one aspect of what it means to be human, and that is just how easily it is that we get lost. You see, they just wander on. I don't know if you've ever watched a sheep in a field, right? They just wander. They just wander from one patch of grass to the next patch of grass to the next patch of grass to the next. And on and on and on it goes. Eyes down, only in what is immediately in front of them that they want, right? Short-sightedly unaware that they aren't where they should be. And with every patch of grass that they kind of walk over to and eat next, they are further away from the flock and the fold. That's how sheep get lost. They just get their head down, almost certainly in good stuff, right? They're just eating grass. They need to eat grass. It's a good thing. They just get their head down. But all of a sudden, they look up and they're lost. And this right here is the simplest way for us to get lost as followers of Jesus. It's just the simplest way. You just got your head down, maybe even in good stuff, right? School, then uni, then work, then a better job, and then a wife and a house, and then a nicer house, and then a car, and then kids, and then home improvements, and then so on and so on and so on, right? Better finances, better tastes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just with your focus on the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And all of a sudden, one day you realize that you're nowhere near where you thought you were or where you want to be. The easiest way to get lost is just to get your head down and go from the one thing to the next. Or maybe you're a bit more like the coin. This is how Jesus continues. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it, right? You've probably noticed by now, now the odds are down to one from 10, okay? And I don't care who you are. If you lose a tenth of what you have, you feel it, don't you? Like a tenth is a significant portion of all that you have, right? And she's lost it, and now she's looking for it. And the thing is, it's a coin, right? What differs from a shape? You know, a shape has a life of its own. It can kind of do its own thing. A coin doesn't, does it, right? A coin is inanimate. It can't move itself. It can't do anything, actually. But still, it's got lost. And actually, Jesus does this interesting thing, which is the word that he uses for coin, okay? It does mean coin, but it also means something else. The word is zuzim. And actually, it also means those who have moved away. It's a play on words, and it's clever. It means those who have moved away. And there it is, because so it is to us. You see, Jesus is using a deliberate play on words so that coins all of a sudden aren't just coins anymore. They are people who have somehow ruled away, but yet they are still in the house. They're people who have ruled away, and yet somehow they're still in the house. And sitting in every church, this one included, in every part of this country and every country are Zuzim. As I say this today, there are people in this room and they are Zuzim. They just rolled away, but somehow you are still in the house. Stuff has changed. Maybe you don't feel the way that you did once. Or questions have come and they've taken over or pain or cynicism or life or whatever. 
One way or another, you've rolled away, but somehow you're still in the house. Here's the thing about things like that. When that happens, as you well know, if you drop a coin or you drop something precious on the floor of your house, it's sooner or later, it's just waiting to get swept up, isn't it? Like Elle has this little box, okay? It's like this little, I don't know, it's made of like some form of ceramic thing that belonged to her nana that she gave her as a gift. By the way, it got smashed within about 13.5 seconds of her owning it. But anyway, it's been glued back together, okay? And inside that, Elle houses her precious things. They're like little stones, you know, colorful bits of stones that you pick up on a beach or little jewels, like little things like that that she's picked up along the way. And every so often she just come into the living room and she just scatter them all over the floor, right? And the first thing you say as a parent is, you need to pick those up or sooner or later, I'm going to hoover that up and it's going to be gone forever. Here's the thing, to people that roll away but are still in the house, they're just waiting to get swept up by some sweeping operation. The thing is that on one side of the coin, that's exactly the way of our world, isn't it? You just get swept up in the stuff of this life, the stuff of work, demands around family and relationships and finances and all the stuff, right? That will sweep you up if you let it. But equally, a sweeping operation is exactly what Jesus' kingdom message came to be and to do. You have choices today, if that's you. What are you being swept up by? If you've rolled away, but you're still in the house, the question today is, what are you being swept up by? Is it the kingdom or is it something else? What is sweeping up your heart? What, is, what motivates, what drives, what excites you, what gathers you up when, it, when you hear it, right? What is sweeping you up this morning? Lost. Or maybe finally you're like the sun. Jesus continues. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them, and not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. You see, now we're talking about sons, and now the odds are down from from, from one from two. We've went from one from 100 to one from 10, and now we're down to one from two. And all of us know that when we're talking about those odds, it's costly, right? Especially because we're talking about a son. It's personal. It's painful. But this time the son has got lost and he absolutely meant to, right? He went his own way, deliberately cutting himself off from the father and his way of life to do his own thing. And we do exactly the same things too. When we hear the story of the prodigal son, we kind of hear it and we're appalled in lots of ways, aren't we? And then actually, whenever you start to look at your own life, you start to realize, I do exactly the same things on an almost daily basis. I was working with a young person a little, a little while ago, and they had choices to make about kind of future and what they were doing and all that sort of stuff. And we were talking loads, and, um, and it was good. We were praying for them. They were praying about it and all of that sort of stuff. And then at one stage, um, they started to chat about it, and they were like, look, I really think that I'm meant to do this, okay? I think like God's spoken to me, and, and I'm meant to go this way, okay? And we were like, unbelievable. That's so good. I'm so glad that you feel this sense that God is leading you. So how are you going to do it, right? And then they said, I'm not. I kind of think I'm going to do this instead because it makes a little bit more sense. And we'll come back to that later. And the thing is, you know, whenever I was around that situation, I was kind of like down on that myself. I was like, you know, God, they feel like God's spoken to them, feel like they know where their life's going and they're actually just deciding, no, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to do my own thing instead. But the thing is, 
In a million ways, we all do that. I'm always in a hurry to get into work in the morning, right? I do the school run with Elle, drop her off, bring the car back home, walk, get the bus, get into town, dash across the office, right? So every morning I'm in this, like, I am like the sheep. I am like head down, earphones in, making it as quickly as I can to the office. You know, three times, three times in the last week, I walked up that street uh, that comes up towards the church. And three times as I walked up, each of those mornings, I felt that the Lord spoke to me to go into O Donuts and to pray for Benji, who works in O. And three times, I just got my head down and I kept walking into the office. We all do it. What's that about? I'm ashamed to admit that that is a feature of my life. But yet I know that that is a feature of all of our lives when we deliberately decide to walk another way. It's about the lostness we choose when we know who we are and we know Jesus is on our case about life and yet we choose another way, our way, in our time, when we want to. Lost. You know, the Pharisees who were listening um, And there's a Pharisee in all of us. If you've grown up, especially in a church background or a faith kind of community in your lifetime, there's a Pharisee inside each and every one of us, right? And the Pharisees listen to these parables because very often Jesus told a parable in response to a question or a comment or something that a a Pharisee or a scribe had said, okay? And they listen to them regularly, right? And they had this habit of putting themselves in the shoes of the authority figure in each of the stories that Jesus tells, right? So in this case, there are authority figures, and very often the Pharisees, they, instead of kind of considering themselves like a sheep, a coin, or like a son that goes away, they don't consider themselves like that. They're above that, right? They're the good guys, the holy people, the religious people. So they lift themselves above that, except this time they had a problem, because all three Figures, okay, that Jesus chooses to use in authority positions are ones that they couldn't own. A shepherd was a rough person, right? Shepherds in that period of time, they were not kind of quaint and thought of well, right? They were thought of as dishonest and rough and spent their times in the hell. They were like a rogue. So they couldn't associate themselves with a shepherd. A woman, well, a Pharisee definitely couldn't associate themselves with a woman. And a father who shames himself like that. And so they were backed into a corner. Jesus' teaching pushes them back into a corner because all of a sudden they can't take the position of authority. They have to take one of the other rules. They are forced to deal with the lostness in their lives. And so are we. When we hear these parables this morning, right, about sheep, about coins, and about sons, we are forced to deal. Jesus is backing you into a corner this morning forcing you to deal with the lostness yourself. We don't get to opt ourselves out. We're all lost, and almost certainly in one of the ways that Jesus describes. And even right at the end of the parable of the prodigal son, right, we don't know how that story ends, okay? If you read on to verse 32, just right at the end, it's like it just stops, right? The older brother has an issue. Uh, the father kind of tells him he's lost, but he's fine. But we don't know what happens next. We don't know if this, the older son comes in and joins the party. We don't know if he storms off. We don't know what happens to the younger son later on. Does that younger son stay faithful, or does he little, later on screw it all up again? We don't know how it ends. The thing is, Jesus didn't mean to give us the end. He meant to leave it open-ended, because he meant that we would have to ask each and every one of ourselves, Jesus, what are you saying? What are you saying? 
to the lostness that you've backed me into a corner that now I see, that I've known has been there, that I try to ignore, that I try to elevate myself and rationale with myself. But I'm a good person and I give to this charity and I give to that church and I do this and that and the other, right? We try to elevate ourselves out of those positions, right? Jesus is backing you into a corner. He's leaving the story open-ended at the end and he's saying to you today that you might have to ask, Jesus, what are you saying? What are you saying to me today? What are you saying to me about the aspects of my life that I'm not proud of? What are you saying? The story's about being lost. But thankfully, that's not all they're about. They're also about being found. See, the good news is that no matter how backed into a corner you now feel, no matter how lost, right, there is always an opportunity to be found. And in many ways, the features of the three parables relate to three features of who God is, okay? And how he finds us. And in the first case, right, he's a shepherd, all right? Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, goes home, and then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. See, this one is the most obvious one. The shepherd is Jesus. The one who calls himself the good shepherd. The one who the Bible says is the great shepherd. Shepherd is Jesus. The one who left heaven for earth. The cross, the grave, the resurrection. That Jesus is still the one who leaves the 99 to find the one. But secondly, it could be like the woman who looks for the coin, right? This is what it says. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it. She calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. You know, like I said earlier on, the coin can't move, right? That's kind of a defining feature of a coin, right? In many ways, a coin can't lose itself, right? But equally, the second issue with a lifeless object is that it can't do anything to make itself found either, right? When a coin gets lost, it can't make itself found. Only you can find it, you or someone else. And in many ways, it's so much like life without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When you think of the shepherd, you think of what Jesus does. When you think of the woman in the house, you need to think about the action of the Holy Spirit in our lives. See, like you see God, like you believe in him, but the problem is that he's often way out there to lots of Christians, right? He's cosmic, he's above it all, he's worthy of it all. It's all of those things, right? He is way out there. The issue is he's not in here. It's not in here. And so you respect him and you pray like crazy when something is wrong, but he's not close. And you don't know how to change that. And you don't know how to get found. The reason is that you can't. There are things in your life, there's lostness and brokenness in each and every one of us that we can do nothing about ourselves. That it is the action of the Holy Spirit in making us find that makes all the difference in the world. That's the Holy Spirit. This is how John's gospel puts it again in Jesus' words. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, that means helper, to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives in you and will be in you. 
Like the woman, he turns on the lamp, he sweeps the floor, he turns the house to look for the coin. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The woman is like how the Spirit animates us. That we cannot be animated on our own. We cannot live a certain way without the action of the Holy Spirit happening in our lives. And when you read the story about the woman and the coin, think about the action of the Holy Spirit in our lives this morning. And finally, there is the Father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the thing is this morning, that is him. That's the truest picture of the father. That's the truest picture of the one that we often think is way out there, right? The cosmic one, the, the omni one, right? The omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, all those sorts of words that we give to our God and our father, right? That one that feels way out there, this is a true reflection of who he really is. And the thing about this story is that Jesus never meant for it to be realistic, right? That's the whole kind of point about what he's saying, right? I mean, each of the stories kind of gets more ridiculous, right? I mean, lots of people of that time couldn't have fathomed the shepherd that left a hundred sheep to go after one, right? They couldn't have fathomed turning your house upside down to look for just one coin. I mean, how valuable can it be? And more, even more ridiculous than that is that they could not fathom a father who acted like this. The thing is, the whole crowd would have known it. They would have known it wasn't meant to be like real life. High, shame. Shame. The action of shame. The father acts shamefully. So when the son asks for his inheritance, right, what we know now is that what he was actually in the culture of that day is that essentially he's saying, I would rather if you were dead. He's essentially telling the father, do you know what? I want my money. The way I get my money is if you die. So do you know what, Dad? I'd rather you were dead. Give me my money. That's shameful, right? To that culture, that is shameful. And the next reason why that's shameful, right, is because asking for the money to leave, he's essentially abandoning what was a cultural duty on sons too, which was to look after the father whenever he got old. And that's shameful too. What kind of son leaves a father and leaves him to grow old and die on his own, right? So there's a second layer of shame. And even beyond that, there's a third layer, right? Because the, the, the father owned the land, right? The, the parable says that he divided up his land. Well, how do you get money out of land? You sell it, right? So the father divides up his land and then he has to sell it in order to raise the funds so that he can give the, the funds to the son, right? And in that culture and in that time, it was a shame to sell land that you owned to have somebody else that was not your family come in and take over that land. We were just um, talking to some friends recently that have moved into some land. Uh, they built a house uh, on top of, of Sleeve Crude Mountain, right? And they got the house. The, house was the land was given to them by a local farmer, right? And it like stirred up a hornet's nest in the family because the father had given away land for somebody that wasn't one of their family to build a house on the land, right? And it was like the talk of the town, right? Have you heard he gave up his land, right? It was a shame to give up your land. A shame. So there's three layers. Shame on top of shame on top of shame. In fact, one commentator writes it like this. By both ancient and modern standards, the exemplary father in the parable of the prodigal son is a foolish parent. It's a shameful situation. 
And it's an extraordinary story. And Jesus, ta- Jesus tells it to illustrate God's astonishing patience and love for ungrateful kids like me and like you. See, it displays the foolishness of the one that we follow and the foolishness of the way of life that we enter into when we follow him. And the thing about it is that we've always had a problem with grace, haven't we? Like we talk about grace and we gladly receive it ourselves, but we have a major issue with it whenever grace gets extended to somebody else, don't we? See, back when these stories were originally circulating in their first context, there were several other interpretations going around and they had added bits on to the story, right? Especially the first two. The, first, the, the story about the sheep was that it wasn't just one sheep that he'd lost. You say it was, it was some sheep, right? It was, like more, it was worth more than the other 99 put together. It was like a ginormous sheep somehow. And so, you know, it made perfect sense to leave the 99 to go and find that sheep because it was some sheep. And then there were other interpretations that went around about the coin, right? This wasn't just one coin. This was an incredibly valuable coin, much more valuable than all the other coins put together. And they were all attempts to try and say that there was something special about the thing that was lost, something that made it rational to go after it, how God does. But here's the thing. There wasn't anything special about it. There was nothing special about the things that got lost in these parables. In the same way, there's nothing special about us, is there? Even on your best days. Even when we give ourselves our pep talk into the mirror in the morning before you go to work. There's nothing special about you or about I. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. There's nothing in us that makes it rationally worthwhile for God to do what he did for you and for me. And that's why we're so uncomfortable about grace, isn't it? Because if we're really honest with ourselves, we know that we aren't worth it. And we think that others aren't either. It's like how my daughter and now my son look at me as their parent, right? And it's something that I've noticed about how every child looks at their mom or dad when they're kind of at that age that that my kids are at at this moment in time. Like they look at you like you are the greatest dad in the whole world, right? They look at you like you're the greatest person they've ever seen. You know, when they come in and they fall and they cry and it's only you that they want and it's the comfort that only you can provide, you are the greatest person in the world. And the thing is that it's not surprising for you to learn today that I'm not, right? I'm not great. I'm not great at all, even when I'm short, right? Even when I fall, even if I somehow manage to hurt Elle, like bump her head or knock her over or anything like that, the thing is that they still look at you the same. And that's it with God. That's it. That there's nothing special about me or about you. There's nothing that makes it worth his while to find you. But Jesus has always been about a completely different economy of grace. Not just like different levels, a different economy of grace. One that isn't shaped by self-justification or sticking to the rules or being just better than the person next to you, right? Jesus doesn't deal in that way at all. He deals with the sort of grace that's marked by the joy of receiving something you don't deserve. It's marked by the joy of being found. And for every single one of us, right, 
that tends to come in a moment, okay? That's why every one of these parables kind of has that message at the end, which uh, there's been lots of debate about down through the years from theologians and scholars. Uh, whenever it says that line at the end of each of them about heaven rejoicing most about the lost one that gets found, right? You know, the first parable says that heaven rejoiced more about one sinner getting found than the other 99 who don't need to get found is essentially what it's saying. And there's lots of kind of debate about that, right? And it's not that all of us who have made our decisions to follow Jesus are worth less than those who just do, right? It's not like that. It's not that we mean less to God. It's that there still needs to be a moment in life where every follower of Jesus, where they know they got fine. I'm not talking about us going back to the age of the old school thing, like where when I worked for Alpha, I met this guy who ran a charity down south, and, and he came forward and he said, well, and he shook hands with me. Obviously, we can't do that anymore. He shook hands with me and said, you know, blessings, David, right? You know you're in a Christian conversation when it starts like that. Blessings, David. And then he said, I was washed by the blood of the Lamb in September the 31st. Da, 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 da. He said, tell me, when were you washed with the blood of the Lamb, right? What an introduction, right? I'm just like, holy smokes, this guy's intense, but... I'm not talking about going back to that. But I do think that every follower of Jesus needs to know that there was a point in their life where they got found. Needs to know that there was a moment, there was a time, there was a decision in their life where they knew that they were the one that he left the 100, the 10, the 2 for. Knew when you were that one. And for me, that was in Dublin at a football camp when I was 14 years old. You see, I don't have one of those testimonies, right, where I used to do drugs and stab people up at the weekend, right? I know you're all shocked to know that, right? Because clearly, like, as you look at me, I would be the worst thug ever, right? Anyway, I don't have one of those testimonies, sorry. I grew up in a Christian home my whole life. I can't say that there was a single time in my life where I didn't have some awareness of the reality of God, the truth of who he is out there, and the truth of who he was in and around our lives, growing up in a manse where I saw people come to faith, where I saw prayers got answered, where I saw people walking through, wrestling through the things of Jesus in our family life, right? But yet I hadn't had a moment, hadn't had a moment where I decided, right, that I wasn't just going to walk out the faith of my family or just kind of be carried along by everything else, that I was going to have a moment where I said, Jesus, I know you're on my case, and this is it. And that for me happened in a football camp in like a sweaty meeting room after like a five-minute talk by a youth leader who's now actually a Presbyterian minister in Glen Gormley. And right in that moment, it all made sense. I met the Holy Spirit and encountered Jesus for who he was. I knew it was happening. I knew I wanted it. I knew that I chose it. I came home from football camp uh, on the Saturday, you know, when you're like, you haven't slept for about a week and you put sun in in your hair. <laughs> and like, you know, you come back, right? I came back that Saturday uh, and immediately went out, met my, met my best mate and immediately told him as I was walking along, so I've got something to tell you, right? I became a Christian. And he did like standard teenage boy response. Ah, oh, cool. And that was it, right? That was my first sharing of my testimony with another human being, right? It was not revival breaking out in Newton Abbey. But here's the thing, right? When was your moment? When do you know that you were the one that got found? 
When was the moment that it doesn't matter about what anybody else was doing? It doesn't matter what was happening around you. It didn't matter whether everybody else believed or didn't believe. It didn't matter that you were the last one. And it doesn't matter that you're the first. When was the moment in your life when you knew the action of the shepherd, the one who left the 99 to go after the one, the one who left heaven for earth, went to the cross, raised from the dead, returned to the Father, that that one came for you? When was the moment you got found by that shepherd? Equally, when was the moment that the Holy Spirit came to dwell in your heart? When was the moment when dead things came to life, when ruins, when stuff that was in you, brokenness, stuff that was going on, came to start to come under the action of the Holy Spirit? The parts of you that couldn't move or do anything for yourself all of a sudden start to be animated about. When was that moment? When was the moment that you realized the generosity of the Father who moved heaven and earth just for you? I want to say this morning, you know, that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, to the straight person, to the gay person this morning, to the person struggling through issues around gender, questions that are deep and keep going on, to the person who's done bad and is doing bad, the person who made poor choices just last night. I want to know, I want to tell you this morning that it's you. It's you this is for. Before we get to all the other questions and the stuff that needs to be worked out in people's lives, it's you that he did this for. It's you that the Father and the Spirit and the Son comes for. It's the sort of grace that offends every other one of us in many ways. It is for you. I want to say that maybe this is your moment this morning. Maybe God's been on your case. Maybe you know that there's stuff moving in your life. Maybe you have aches and pains. Maybe there's stuff that Jesus is speaking to you about. Maybe this is your moment this morning. Maybe you've never had one. You've just been carried along by the faith of your family or your friends. You just went to church your whole life and it all sort of makes sense, but it's never been personal to you. Maybe this is your moment this morning.